Okay, we're going to start by reading in Matthew chapter 26, reading from verse 47. Matthew chapter 26, verse 47. And we are now in the phase where Jesus, the betrayal is taking place by Judas, and the arrest is, is occurring. Matthew 26, 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a large crowd with swords and clubs, who came from the chief priests and elders of the people. Now he who was betraying him gave them a sign, saying, Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him. Immediately Judas went to Jesus and said, Hail, Rabbi, and kissed him. And Jesus said to him, Friend, do what you have come for. Then they came and they laid hands on Jesus and seized him. And behold, one of those who were with Jesus reached and drew out his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. Then Jesus said, Put away your sword into its place, for those who take up the sword shall perish by the sword. Or do you think that I cannot appeal to my Father, and he will at once put at my disposal more than twelve legions of angels? How then will the Scriptures be fulfilled which say it must happen this way? And at that time Jesus said to the crowds, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me, as you would a robber? Every day I used to sit in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. But all this has taken place, the Scriptures to fulfill the scriptures of the prophets, then all the disciples left him and fled. Turn to Mark chapter 14. We'll read the parallel account. Mark 14, verse 43. Mark 14, 43. Immediately, while he was still speaking, Judas, one of the twelve, came up accompanied by a crowd with swords and clubs who were there from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now he was betraying him had given them a sign Whomever I kiss, he is the one, seize him, lead him away under guard. And after coming, Judas immediately went to him, saying, Rabbi, and kissed him. They laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood, who stood by drew his sword and struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his ear. And Jesus said to them, Have you come out with swords and clubs to arrest me, as you would a robber? Every day I was with you in the temple, teaching, and you did not seize me. But this has taken place to fulfill the scriptures. And they all left him and fled. And a young man followed, wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body, and they seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Okay, turn to Luke chapter 22. See Luke's account of this. So both Matthew and Mark were eyewitnesses here. Uh, uh, Mark was actually the one who wrote the Gospel according to Mark. He was the young man, actually, who, who got his, 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 uh, the sheet pulled off his body and ran away naked. That's how they would write themselves into certain accounts. John did the same thing. But Luke was not an eyewitness, but he would question many people, and he wrote this. In Luke chapter 22, reading from verse 47. And while he was still speaking, behold, a crowd came, and one called Judas, one of the twelve, was preaching... One of the twelve was preceding them, and he approached Jesus to kiss him. But Jesus said to him, Judas, are you betraying the Son of Man with a kiss? When those who were around him saw what was going to happen, they said, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And the one, one of them struck the slave of the high priest and cut off his right ear. But Judas answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. I'm sorry, Jesus answered and said, Stop, no more of this. And he touched his ear and healed him. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come against him, 
Have you come out with swords and clubs as you would against a robber? While I was with you daily in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this hour and the power of darkness are yours. Now finally, turn to John 18. It's the last part we'll read. John 18, starting from verse 1. When Jesus had spoken these words, he went forth with his disciples over the ravine of the Kidron, where there was a garden in which he entered with his disciples. Now Judas also, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met there with his disciples. Judas then, having received the Roman cohort and officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, came there with lanterns and torches and weapons. So Jesus, knowing all things that were going to come upon him, went forth and said, Whom do you seek? They answered, Jesus, the Nazarene. He said, I am, I am he. And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them. So when he said, I am he, they drew back and fell to the ground. Therefore he again asked them, Whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus, the Nazarene. Jesus answered, I told you that I am he. So if you seek me, let those go their way. Let these go their way. To fulfill the word which he spoke, Of those whom you have given me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. And the slave's name was Malchus. So Jesus said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? Okay, so we read the four different versions, the four accounts of what happened, what transpired on that night. And let me, let me try to summarize the four by, by going through the one account in John where we're looking. It says, and, and the way John always used to write, you'll see this, John was very specific when it came to names related to the priest and the priest's family because it says just later on in this same chapter that John's family knew the priest's family, and it's the high priest's family. Also, John was very specific with geography. And so as you read through John, he's very specific of, of, of where places were. So John says that his disciples went over the ravine of the Kidron to where there was a garden. So you go down into the Kidron Valley, which is actually quite low. So you've got Jerusalem up here on this mountain. You go down into the Kidron Valley and back up the other side and on top of the other side uh, on, on, the next, on the next mountain there is this Garden of Gethsemane, is the Mount of Olives. And so he's very, very uh, uh, precise in what he says. And he says that Judas, who was betraying him, knew the place, for Jesus had often met them there. You remember from Matthew, which we read last week or two weeks ago, that the, the uh, officers had said, the, the priests had said, let's not attack Jesus during the feast, lest there be a riot. It was never their intent to go after Jesus and have this trial during the feast. It was actually to wait till the feast was done. But Jesus forced their hand because Jesus pointed to, uh, to Judas at the Last Supper and said, you're the man. You're the one betraying me. So he forced his hand. Judas went and he, he had this deal struck with the high priest for 30 pieces of silver. And he had already arranged for the Roman cohort which means that Pilate had already issued the Roman cohort. And we'll see as we go through the trial that though this trial was taking place very early in the morning before Pilate, like about 3 a.m., Pilate was all dressed and ready for this trial because he knew it was coming. 
He had already issued the Roman cohort. The Roman cohort was 400 to 600 soldiers. So imagine 400 to 600 Roman soldiers. And Roman soldiers didn't worry much about killing people. They would string up all sorts of people all the time. So you've got 400 to 600 soldiers. Along with them, it says, was the temple guard. So you had, we don't know how many of them, we just know it was more than one. It may have been a hundred, it may have been two. The temple guard, that's the temple police, because the Jews were allowed to have their own police force around the temple. They were allowed to do that. So some were the temple guard, and then along with them were some servants of the high priest. The high priest himself would never be there, because the, and none of the priests were going to be there, because they would be defiled. But among them were some of the other officials and some of the members of the Sanhedrin. There were officials with them, but the high priest could never go because he would be defiled because it was the Passover. Had, 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 they had just eaten the Passover meal that night. And actually, the priest would actually eat it on, on the Friday during the, during the daytime. The, the general people would eat it thir- our Thursday night, which is their Friday morning. After, after sundown, Thursday night is their Friday morning. That's when Jesus ate it, or, or their Friday, the beginning of the day. So our Thursday night is when the Passover was for Jesus. So he comes in with these disciples, and Judas, it says, having received, in verse 3, the Roman cohort, John 18:3, and the officers from the chief priests and the Pharisees, so there were Pharisees among them, came with lanterns and torches and weapons. Imagine now the crowd. This is not four guys coming for Jesus. You have four to six hundred Roman soldiers. You have a bunch of police. You have some Pharisees and you have some slaves. And they're coming out carrying weapons, carrying torches, carrying spears, carrying, uh, and, and with these orders to arrest Jesus. So you've got Jesus with ten of his disciples there. So you, they were pretty overwhelmed. Imagine say, 600, 700 people coming. That's a lot of people. And these aren't, you know, college students bebopping up the hill. These are Roman soldiers and police. And, and you know, I, I grew up, I'm fr- I was born in New York City, grew up just outside of the city. And, and one thing we learned very early on is you don't mess around with New York City cops. If they tell you to do something, you just do it, because they can really make your day quite unpleasant. And so you're told to do something, you do it. And, if, you know, even if they tell you to do something silly, you just say, yes, sir, and you just do it. And, and uh, so here are all these people coming to Jesus, this huge crowd carrying all these weapons. And it, said, Jesus said, it says in verse 4, So Jesus, knowing all things that were coming upon him, went forth and said to them, Whom do you seek? And we know from the other portions that we read is that Judas had a sign. He said, the one that I kiss is the one that's it. That's the guy. And we know from Mark's account that Jesus actually confronted him before he kissed Jesus. But then he betrayed Jesus with a kiss. And that kiss of a rabbi, to say, hail rabbi, and to kiss a rabbi means I come under your authority. So he was even taking that which was precious to a Jew and defiling it and using it as as a sign. And so Jesus said to them, whom do you seek? They said, Jesus the Nazarene. And he said, I am he. In other words, if, if you actually have a, have a New American standard which tries to copy the Hebrew text, it says, I am, and the word he is italicized. So all he said is, I am. 
And Judas also, who was betraying him, was standing with them, meaning standing with the crowd that had come to get Jesus. And so when he said, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. And then they asked him, whom do you seek? And he said, they said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus answered, I told you that I am. So if you seek me, let these go their way. So when Jesus says, I am, that could be to mean, I'm the guy you're looking for. Or it could be the great I am, as God described himself to Moses. When Moses said, who are you? Who should I tell them you are? He says, I am who I am. Tell them the I am has sent you. Tell Pharaoh the I am has sent you. That is how God revealed himself. So there is this whole godly thing that it could be. It might mean, I am like, this is God. Or it might be, I'm the guy you're looking for. Which one is it? Well, actually, it is both. The first time he says, I am, I am he, it says, the whole crowd of them drew and fell backward. They all fell back. So we know that this is the I am, I am God. I mean, what would cause a crowd of 700 people with weapons and torches who know that they're coming against, you know, a bunch of fishermen and some religious teacher, a total of 11 people there, going to get scared and fall back? I mean, come on. New York City cops aren't going to fall back because you say, I am. (laughs) I mean, something's happened here. This is a huge crowd of soldiers. Remember, Roman soldiers would string up Jews and, and crucify Jews and just line the roads with them. This was no great account for them. They didn't have to, you know, if, if, if they heard a Jew, it wasn't like they had to give all sorts of explanations for this and, and be court-martialed for this thing. No, I mean, it, this is just, just a Jew. I mean, this is like, like shooting a dog. I mean, there's no accountability here. There's nothing here. And Jesus says, I am, and they all fall back. Jesus is very much in control of this situation. He is very much in control. He says, I am, and they all fall back. They fall on the ground. I mean, can you imagine? And it says Judas was standing with them. So Judas now is experiencing the judgment of God. He's never experienced that before. He's always been on the other side of the barrier with Jesus. And now he falls back and says he was standing with them. They all fell on the ground. Jesus is very much in charge. Jesus said, no one takes my life, but I lay it down of my own accord. Jesus is still very much in charge. And then he says, he says they, uh, um, when he said, I am, they drew back and they fell to the ground. Therefore, he asked them again, Whom do you seek? They said, Jesus the Nazarene. And Jesus said, I told you that I am He. So if you seek me, let these go their way. So the second time He says, I am, we know it's, I'm the guy. Because they didn't fall back again. Had He said, I'm the, I am. I mean, they'd have fall down again. They get up and he didn't fall down again. I mean, He could have done this all day. But He didn't. The second one is, I'm the guy you're looking for. Jesus is very much in control. And so they say to him, uh, 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 he said, I said, whom do you seek? And they said, Jesus the Nazarene. Okay, we'll go through this again. Let's take it once again from the top. I'm the guy you're looking for. Then he says, so if you seek me, let these go their way. Who is Jesus 
he is the one being arrested. You know, the one being arrested by 700 people with weapons, four to 600 of them Roman soldiers, and a bunch of police. The soldiers and police are in charge. Or the Pharisees leading this band, normally. You see what I mean? It's not the guy being arrested. The guy being arrested is telling them what they can do and what they can't do. Who is he to do this? But Jesus said, if you're looking for me, let these go their way. I mean, even in the midst of this, Jesus is very much in charge. You take, you know, one guy wrapped up in a, in, in, in a linen sheet, and he's controlling this enormous crowd who's come to arrest him. Jesus was an amazing guy. You know, once in a while you may meet a person who spends a lot of time on his knees or on her knees before God. A lot of time. And they will be humble and kind and gracious in many ways. But in many ways, they're the ones who control large masses of people just by their word. They say, no, we're going to do it this way. And people follow. People who spend a lot of time with God get this inherent uh, 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 authority within them which comes from God. Because of God resonant within them, they just exude God. And all of a sudden, people are like, whoa. Imagine. Now, not just a regular man who spends a lot of time with God, but God Himself, the man Jesus. The power He must have yielded to control this and say, look, you're coming for me, let these guys go. Verse 10, verse 9, to fulfill the word which he spoke, of those whom you gave me, I lost not one. Simon Peter then, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear, and the slave's name was Malchus. Okay, so how do we know the slave's name was Malchus? Only John reveals that, that the slave's, name's, the slave's name was Malchus. And that's because John knew the high priest's family. Because it says um, in verse 15 of that same chapter, Simon Peter was following Jesus, and so another disciple, and so was another disciple. Now that disciple was known to the high priest's family and entered with Jesus into the court of the high priest. But Peter was standing at the door outside. So the other disciple, who was known to the high priest, went out and spoke to the doorkeeper and brought Peter in. People wouldn't refer to themselves by name in what they wrote in those days. They would refer to themselves, in this case, John refers to himself as as the disciple whom Jesus loved. This is John. John knew Annas' family. John could get into the court where Annas lived. Peter couldn't. So he goes out, he talks to the one guarding the door, and he says, hey, it's me, John, let this guy in, he's a friend of mine. And he lets him in. This is the authority that John had because he knew the high priest's family. John knew Malchus. That's how John knew him by name. This was the high priest's slave. John knew him. It's like, you know, you, you, see, you see Bill's ear get cut off. You know Bill. That was Bill's ear. You know, to the man on the street, that's just some guy lost his ear. But to you, it's Bill. And you describe it that way. And it says that that Peter, having a sword, drew it and struck the high priest's 
slave, the high priest's slave and cut off his right ear. Where'd Peter get a sword? Who told him to carry a sword? Jesus did. Remember Jesus said, if you have a sword, and they said, oh, here's two. He says, that's enough. So we know that they had two swords among them, but then Jesus says, don't use it. But Peter actually pulls out this sword and uses it. Remember Peter said, I'm willing to die with you? This, I am telling you, was an act of suicide on Peter's behalf. Peter was going to die. You don't come up against a crowd of 700 people with weapons and pull out your little dagger and go... You don't do that. You're going to die. Remember, they take Jews out like animals. You're going to die. Peter was absolutely ready to die with Jesus. He wasn't running. He was ready to die with Jesus. This was total suicide. As if Peter and this other group of his are going to take out these guys with a couple of daggers. It's not going to happen. Not only this, remember, you've got around 700 people. Maybe it's 600, but it's a lot of people. They've got torches. I mean, a torch. I mean, all you've got to do is light their hair on fire. I mean, you've got, you got weapons and all these soldiers around you. Peter picks out the slave. <laughs> That's like picking out, you, you know, the skinniest and the smallest guy in the crowd. I mean, this is who Peter went after. Of all people, for him to go after. So, you know, you're not going to go up against a Roman soldier standing there. You might as well just go up against, like, at least take one guy out before you go after Right? I mean, this is what he did. Of all the people for him to go after, you've got one slave there. And he goes after Malchus. I mean, this little Malchus. That's it. And actually, he cuts off his right ear. Now, it is very hard to, to take a sword and to surgically remove somebody's ear intentionally. Right? It's not like, uh, you know, he's Zorro. Let me, let me take off your ear. And the ear is gone. Right? So he was obviously had to be trying to kill the guy. And generally, people are right-handed. Right? And especially in those days, they were right-handed. And you say, why especially in those days? Because if you go to the Middle East and Asia today, if they see a child writing with their left hand, they will say, don't let them do that. Put, it in their, put the pencil in their right hand. They discouraged left-handedness. It was actually, actually something that, that, that they thought wasn't good. And, and I've seen this happen. I've seen people from that part of the world when my daughter was writing with her left hand, they tried to convince me not to let her do that. Make her... So people really were right-handed in those days. So assuming Peter was right-handed, chances are he was, and if he really wasn't, they made him into it. How are you going to remove somebody's right... Which ear was it? Right ear. All right? How are you going to remove his right ear? That means that you have to come across on this side of their, their face and remove their, their ear. You, you see what I mean? I mean, just think about it. I mean, am I putting too much science into this? What? Could he have done it from... So the guy had his back? That's actually probably more logical. I, haven't, I hadn't thought of that. 
he maybe hit him from behind. <laughs> because, you know, I was thinking, how's he going to go across to the other side of his face and somehow, you know, remove the guy's ear? Unless the guy was dodging. But from behind, it, it's actually, you know, you're going and, and it, it's actually more natural to do that. So, yeah, it might have been doing that. And we know that his, his uh, struck the high priest slave and cut off his right ear. Also, Luke reports that he cut off his right ear. Luke is a physician. And Luke actually is the only one of the four accounts to note that Jesus healed the ear. So Jesus says, enough of that. Picks up the guy's ear, dusts it off, and puts it back on his head. He says he cut off his right ear. It wasn't hanging. He says cut it off. It was off. That's how the Bible reports it. So Jesus picks it up and puts it back on. Only Luke reports that it goes back on because he's a physician. To Luke, this is a big deal. To the other, to the disciples, to, to Matthew, Mark, and John, putting on a right ear is nothing. They've seen Jesus raise the dead, heal the blind. I mean, all over. The Bible says that Jesus did many miracles that we have no account of. They couldn't keep track of all he was doing. Remember, it says that all the sick in the city they would bring to him. I mean, just one after another. Boom, boom. Everybody's getting healed and, you know, le- lepers are cleansed and, 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 and lame people are jumping up and walking. Why report that he healed the ear? That's no big deal. They're excited that, that Peter took off the guy's ear. Now, that is cool. This is what we're going to talk about. That's what they report. This is so true. It is so vivid. This is what historians, people who study history, look at this and they say the account that is here in the Scripture could not have been made up. Because all of this fits together with the character of the people, with the character that they would report it. Jesus heals the guy's ear, and in this act of healing his ear, for Bible trivia, this is the only time recorded that Jesus healed a fresh wound. Right? This is the only time we have a record of him recording, healing a fresh wound, and the only time recorded of him healing an enemy. And so, Jesus heals the ear, but this was an act to protect Peter. Because he says, he says in, in, in verse 11, then he said to Peter, Put the sword into the sheath, the cup which the Father has given me. Shall I not drink it? And in the other accounts, he says, Stop! Enough of this! Can you imagine? Big crowd comes out to take out little crowd. Big crowd has swords, spears, everything, ready to go. I mean, you, you talk about soldiers. You know what soldiers want to do? They want to fight. You know, young soldiers, we're ready to fight. Especially when the enemy doesn't have that much going for them, but two daggers. I mean, we're ready for this fight. So you've got the special forces here. And one guy takes out and slices off a guy's ear. These guys are ready to kill him. And Jesus says, stop. The soldiers stand at attention. He stops what's about to be a massacre just by saying, stop. No more of this. Put the sword away. Jesus is very much in control. Remember, he's the arrestee. He's the one being arrested. And he tells the soldiers, he tells the police, Leave the guy alone. He, he doesn't know what he's doing. He's just, he's always sticking his foot in his mouth. 
Um, he's my problem child. Just stop. And he tells Peter, put the sword away. And Peter's like, uh, you told us to bring the sword? All right, I understand. Just put it away. Just put the sword away. Jesus is very much in control here. He says, whoever lives by the sword is going to die by the sword. When it comes to preaching the gospel, we don't use the sword. It's a good way to die. He says, put it away. Put it away. All this is written. He says, the cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? Remember what he had been praying in the garden? If this is the cup you have for me. So now we know what he was talking about. We know for sure. It is this very thing. He is about to enter into this cup-drinking experience. This is the beginning of the cup-drinking experience. This is the cup that the Father has for me. The overwhelming thing that you see here is, in the midst of Jesus about to be arrested, where is his heart? It's to protect these other guys. He says, let them go. You want me? Take me. Let them go. Let them go. And he arranges it so all of them can go away. Jesus himself was going through so much and about to go through so much agony. Where is his heart? It's in protecting the other. Remember what we said that love is? Is this thought? Is this word? Is this action in the other's best interest? If it is not, it is not the love of God. Jesus is constantly working for the other's best interest. This is what godliness is. Always looking out for the other's best interest. Even when we're about to be in a great mess. Even when we're about to go into great problems. He's looking out for the other's best interest. The mercy of Jesus. The kindness of Jesus. Let me close with this thought from John chapter 14. John chapter 14, reading from verse 1. Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you. For I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. That where I am, there you may be also. Look what Jesus says. He says, you know, in my Father's house are many rooms. He says, and I'm going to prepare a room for you. That means that when Jesus left this earth, He went and prepared a room for you. So He builds this room, builds this house, builds this room. It says, in my Father's house are many rooms, the, the, the NIV says. Some Bibles say, some translations say, in, in, say, there are many dwelling places, many mansions. He is preparing this room especially for you. What colors do you like? What kind of bed do you like? He says, He is preparing this room for you. You know, He has this, this whole group of angels that are decorators. <laughs> he says, All right, let me tell you a little bit about the person who's going to be occupying this room. And so these decorators start going to work. He is preparing a room for you. And then it says, I go to prepare a room for you. But it doesn't say that he's going to be standing there and welcoming you and saying, okay, 
time to come on up to this room. It says, He is going to go, come back down and receive you, take you by your hand and lead you to this room. You see how much more comforting it is? If you know you have to go, say, to another country, it is so much easier going to another country when you are traveling there with a dignitary who has come to bring you to that country because you know everything is taken care of. Nobody's going to mess with you because you're with this dignitary and you're going to have VIP service, first class service the whole way. Jesus said, this is what I'm doing for you. I'm going to go and prepare a place for you. And when it's time for you to come, I'm going to come and I'm going to take you by the hand and I'm going to lead you in and I'm going to introduce you to people there and you're going to be right with me and I'm going to take you to your room and I'm going to show you this room which was made especially for you. This is the care of Jesus for His people. This was the care of Jesus for His disciples. He said, you let them go. You want me, you take me. You let them go. And he, he fixed this whole mess of a situation that Peter had gotten the whole group of them into. They were all about to die. All the other disciples, they were collateral damage in arresting the one they had to arrest. I'm telling you, they were dead. All of them. Because of this action of Peter's. Jesus fixes the whole mess of a situation. No matter how much of a mess I make my life, He says, I'm going to receive you. And I'm going to hold your hand. And I'm going to bring you to this room in my Father's house, which was made especially for you. And you've got VIP treatment with me as I lead you up there. Let's pray. Father, I thank you so much for the mercies of Jesus, for the kindness of Jesus, who always looks out for us, for our best interest. Lord, I thank you because you have gone to prepare a place for us and that you will receive your children by taking them by the hand and leading them there. Father, I pray for these young people, your mercies to be upon them that if anyone here doesn't know you, that they would come to know you and learn how good you are, how kind and gracious you are. And of all that you have been given, you lost not a single one. Lord Jesus, I pray for your grace to be upon them, to cause them to grow in the mercies and the grace of God. Bless these young people, I pray. Father, give them good lives that are dedicated to you, that no matter how much of a mess it becomes, that there's the assurance that you will fix it and make it right and receive them into your kingdom. May your mercies be on them. In the name of Jesus. Amen.